So now, brothers and sisters, I will have you turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, where we will be looking at together tonight at verses 27 through 26. This can be found, I believe, on page 1106 of your Pew Bibles. And if you were with us last week, you may recall that Paul and his traveling band of companions had finally arrived in the city of Jerusalem after a long journey where they had been warned and foretold actually through dramatic prophecy that what would happen here, that what would happen would be Paul's arrest. He would be bound with chains and captured. And so we saw that once they arrived in the city and with the tenseness of the moment, they were received in by James and the other elders of, of Jerusalem and they were given a warm reception so that they would be encouraged. And then the next day they shared stories of what they did among the Gentiles and of the great things that God was doing amongst the people of the far reaches of the Roman Empire. And in response, James gave an encouraging update on what, would, what has been going on in Jerusalem. It's quite fitting then that we've just heard this mission update of what's going on in Suriname. Christians have been doing this from the very beginning, sharing updates of God's love and his action on behalf of the world. And so they receive this update and James tells them, of course, if you remember, we suggest to you, Paul, essentially that you undergo this Nazarite vow so that you can show the world and show the Jerusalem people, both Christians and Jews in the city who had been sort of questioning Paul's legitimacy. Actually, rumors were going around through the city that Paul was teaching against the law of Moses and against the Jewish customs and the Jewish faith. And so, Paul, in order to show that Christianity is not in opposition to Judaism, but really its fulfillment, he, he, he goes and he does this. And so this is where we pick up in tonight's passage. We're going to see Paul now entering not just into Jerusalem, but into the temple, going right into the middle of everything, right where he knows things are about to get difficult. Things are about to get interesting. Something Pastor Mark mentioned a few weeks ago was that sometimes God calls us to do these kinds of things, to do difficult things, to go right into the middle of the action. And Paul is now doing this. And so let's pray that the Lord will bless our time and his word together, and then we will read. Let's pray. God, we turn now to your word. We simply ask that you would help us to know it, to understand it, and to live according to it. Lord, we ask that you would help us to meditate on it and to chew on it and digest it so that we would be changed through your powerful words. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So hear now the word of the living God from Acts 21, verses 27 and following. When the seven days were almost completed, that's the seven days of the vow that Paul had just taken, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. 
They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. About 12 years or so ago, when I was in college, living in a residency program that was sort of operated by my church, we would often have local youth pastors or other ministers come into our house that we lived in and give us, uh, lead us in a Bible study of sorts. And I can remember one particular youth pastor, a friend of my own youth pastor, who came in one day, and I don't remember anything else that he taught us that day, about what his main point was of the Bible study. But I do remember him saying, and I'm not sure this is even true, but I remember it very clearly, that he said Jewish rabbis in the ancient world would often compare the scriptures to jewels or gems. And so they would say that they're so beautiful and they have value in their own being, in their own essence, but also as you as you see and move the jewel, you can see new things, and it reflects, refracts new light, and so you can see new beautiful features of the gym as you look closely at it. And again, I'm not sure if any of this is exactly what Jewish rabbis used to say or do. I, I've never been able to figure out one way or the other if that's the case. But being as it is, I do think that there's something to the analogy here. I'm sure almost all of us have had that experience uh, where we've come across a passage in Scripture that we've read a thousand times, and we, we think we know it very well, but then on the 1,001st time, something finally clicks, and we see it in a diff- different way, in a different light, and it begins to make sense, and something profound and beautiful sort of leaps out of the pages at us. And in some sense, of course, this says more about us than the scriptures. It's not that this is necessarily just a supernatural phenomenon that the scriptures only do. We read books, and if you've read a book multiple times, you may see things on the second or third or fourth time through that you never caught before. But that being the case, it's no doubt uh, true that the scriptures are so deep and so rich and so full of meaning that this happens, I would say, at a faster pace. This happens quite a bit in the experience of the Christian life. It really happens all the time, even for me. I studied it in a formal environment in seminary, but even as I read it every day, I'm blown away by the beauty. And in tonight's passage, I think we find a perfect example of this sort of thing. On the surface, we might say that simply this is just the account of Paul being caught and attacked and arrested in the Jerusalem temple. And this would be correct, of course. 
But if that's all we see, then I would submit that we're really missing out on some of the crucial parts of the passage. That The author, Luke, is at pains for us to see. He wants us to note uh, some very important things going on here. So very subtly, in the passage we've just read, he employs two literary techniques in order to make some profound, I would say even polemical or argumentative points against the Jerusalem uh, Jews, those who were gathered there. And his techniques here invite us to see beneath the surface, to sort of see not just the simple arrest account, but to see the spiritual landscape of the city of Jerusalem. He wants us to see deeper realities at play here. And so the two techniques, at least as far as I can tell, are the use of irony and the use of illusion. Now, again, that's not illusion, like an illusion or apparition, but that's illusion, alluding to something. So the first of these is something that pervades the entire scene, this use of irony, and it pervades the story from top to bottom. It's a very ironic story, and Luke employs it masterfully in order to expose and highlight the sort of spiritual rot that had now come to have its grip on the Jewish people, even the ones here living in the heart of the Judean region in this city of Jerusalem, the holy city of David, and not just them, but the ones who are now even gathered in the heart of the city at the city temple, the Jerusalem temple, where was sort of the central uh, location of the entire Jewish faith. Everything sort of centered on what took place in the temple with the daily sacrifices uh, being the main thing. And just like things had happened in the city of Ephesus, which we reflected upon this morning in our morning service, a riot here begins to break out in response to Paul's teaching, uh, but not this time against Paul's teaching, which which was against the idols of Ephesus, particularly the idols of Artemis. Now his teaching is creating a riot uh, because it's disrupting the Jewish religion. The Ephesians had shown how strong the grip of paganism was, and now the Jews here in Acts chapter 21 are revealing the emptiness of a Messiah rejecting Judaism. And so as we read through the narrative, I would say that there are at least five five striking uh, uses of irony, five striking things that Luke wants us to see. The first one would be that despite his best efforts to signal, this is Paul's best efforts, to signal his respect and reverence for the Jewish law and customs, because he's going into the temple to show that, hey, I care about this, I, I, I will submit to, this, to these purification vows. Paul's act of submission is met with swift, violent opposition. Paul was trying to show that, look, I'm not totally against the Jewish customs and laws. We can even remember the story of Timothy, who Paul, who's a Greek, uh, who Paul has circumcised in, in order that he may ha- have one less barrier to the proclamation of the gospel. So too here, Paul is undergoing this vow, again, probably a Nazarite vow, which comes from the book of Numbers, in order to show and signal that he is not totally against the law of God. Uh, I think Paul would say that Jews are totally allowed to continue on in Jewish observances so long as they are not depending on those observances for their salvation. 
They are just doing them as a part of their, their piety towards God, of their reverence and respect. That's something that they would have grown up being used to. Another use of irony would be that under the pretense of obedience to the Mosaic law, the Jews bore false witness in accusing Paul of bringing Greeks, notice the plural, which is definitely a, uh, an exaggeration of the situation, uh, he brought them into the temple. So here what I'm trying to say simply is that though they feign or they pretend to love the Jewish law, one of the Jewish laws is to not bear false witness. And here they are bearing false witness, saying that Paul brought a Greek into the temple, something he did not do. Luke actually very charitably shows us that well, they had seen Trophimus with Paul in the city throughout the week, but then they supposed that he came into the temple. And you can see here in this image, around the temple, is there, there's a sort of barrier, uh, which is a four foot tall or about four and a half feet tall little wall that you would have to come in through to even make it into the grand court leading into the temple itself. And so that wall on the perimeter of the building was the law or the wall of the Gentiles. And it would actually have inscriptions both in Greek and in Latin that have been found by um, archaeologists that, that prove this to be the case. And it would basically say if any Gentile proceeds past this point, they will basically be taking their own life into their own hands because we will kill you. Uh, you are unclean and unable to come past this wall. That is the wall of hostility that Paul will himself talk about in Ephesians chapter 2. And so that is an interesting thing to keep in mind. Paul did not bring Trophimus into the temple uh, building, into the temple courts. And, but they, so they lie, essentially, and say that he did. The third use of irony is that they accused Paul of teaching against Judaism when in reality he taught against paganism. Paul was not against Judaism. Paul was teaching the fulfillment of Judaism, that the prophesied Messiah had come, and that he was the one true sacrifice of which all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed towards. And so Paul's religious... Uh, his, his teachings actually were upsetting and disrupting not Judaism, they were dis- disrupting the Greek religions, such as the worship of Artemis in, in Acts chapter 19. The fourth irony of the situation, though they shut the gates, we're told, in order to prevent further desecration, they would say, from happening inside the temple, I think Luke mentions this because it seems to be that really it's God shutting the gates on the Jewish religion and its hard-heartedness. And so we should, I think, take note of that as we read through that section and we see that verse. Keep that in the back of our minds. This is sort of the symbolic conclusion uh, to the Jewish religion. Not that Jews were not able to be saved. That's not it at all. Uh, but it was a recognition of their hard-heartedness as a nation, their rejection of Christ. Paul, of course, himself is a Jew. And the Jew- Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, such as James and others, were themselves also Jews. And so we should not have any hatred in our hearts towards Jewish people, but we should want them, just like Paul, to be Christians, to know the Lord. 
The fifth irony of the passage here is that their plans for swiftly killing a man accused of associating too closely with Gentiles were thwarted by Gentile soldiers who, unlike them, sought to act justly and according to the law. And so the sort of heroes, oddly enough, in this episode are not the ones who are pretending to be religious and fervor, or zealous Christians with much fervor or zealous Jews with much fervor, but it's actually the Gentile Roman guards who come on Paul's behalf to arrest him, which actually proves to be what saves Paul's life. And so this sort of highlights uh, their sort of uh, pagan justice. Though they are not Christians, they are acting justly in this situation according to their own law. And so just as the prophets of the Old Testament would testify and prophesy again and again against the faithlessness of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, and the emptiness of their worship because they had often turned away from God and turned towards foreign gods and they had grown cold towards the Lord, so too here Luke is wanting us to see just how spiritually bankrupt this people had become. The city was indeed a powder keg, as we saw last week. And now, with the hated apostle showing his face not only in the city, but now in the temple, everything had sort of found the match. It was about to be struck. And so we can note Luke's characteristic of his use of hyperbole in verse 30. Then all the city, he says, was stirred up. And surely this didn't mean that literally every person in Jerusalem was stirred up, but it does reveal how significant and chaotic this scene must have been. It would have been a huge deal. Of course, it was a big enough deal to get the attention of the Roman guards who, uh, in I would say in some wisdom, had set up uh, many centuries before a guard station just outside of the, of the temple known as the uh, I forget what exactly the terminology is, but it's the sta- sort of the station of Antonia. They call it that. And it was basically where the Roman soldiers would keep a close eye on everything going on in the temple because they knew that things would often go wrong. But if, the Jews, of course, in these days, they were known to be a wily, sort of uh, zealous, seditious even, bunch of people. Uh, they would often breathe threats of rebellion against the, the Roman Empire, as we're well aware. Uh, there was a lot of struggle and opposition between Jews and Gentiles in this time. And the Jews didn't like very much that the Romans were sort of uh, infiltrating their city and had set up... Uh, their own power and their own control of the city. This is almost sort of like a, a volcano on the brink of eruption then. That's the sense that we get from the city of Jerusalem. And so it makes sense that just about 15 years or so after this episode here, the city of Jerusalem would fall the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, where Rome would lay siege to Jerusalem and most importantly of all, destroy the temple and thereby sort of effectively destroying the former practice of the Jewish religion, which was so central about 
sacrifice. Now, ever since, the Jewish religion is not a sacrificial religion. It is something that rabbis, not no longer priests, high priests who are doing the sacrifices, now it's rabbis who are teaching customs and tradition. Ever since that point from 70 AD, the Jewish religion has shifted and has become very different than what it once was. It has never been quite the same. And so from what we've seen so far, what are some of the lessons we might then glean from the passage? The most most important lesson I would suggest is that we simply learn to trust Christ, to see him as our Messiah, to understand that he has come to set us free. The Jews failed to recognize God's loving activity even as it stared them in the face. Paul had come and preached the gospel all around the Roman Empire to Jewish people in their synagogues, and they rejected him. And he would often turn then to go and preach to the Gentiles. But not only did they reject the men, the preachers of the gospel, they rejected the gospel itself. And this is why, years later, writing in a letter to the church in the city of Rome, Paul would go on to write these words as though they were soaked by tears. You could, you could hear his sadness as he writes these words in Romans chapter 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So it's not just Israelites who are truly a part of Israel. Israel is God's people. And Paul's message over the course of his body of writing, as we see, is that God's people also mysteriously includes Gentiles, us who are not Jews. So at the end of this chapter, chapter 9, the famous chapter of predestination, of course, he concludes with these words. I wouldn't say concludes, but he continues his argument. So he says, what shall we say then? Noticing that Jews had rejected the gospel and that Gentiles had now received it by faith. He says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, which was the cross of Christ. They believe that by their obedience to the law, their zealousness in upholding the law, sticking to the traditions and the customs, doing all the right things, they could earn God's salvation and love. And they wouldn't need to have faith in this Redeemer, this Messiah. So the message to us then is clear. It's a simple one. Trust Jesus. Trust in Him. Trust in His righteousness that comes to us by faith. Put your hope and your faith and your allegiance in Him, not in your own ability to uphold the law. 
And so that was Luke's use of irony. Uh, we can see that. Uh, but now let's see, what, what does he have to say about illusion? How does he use illusion to allude to something uh, profoundly in this story? And this device, I would say, has actually been used long in the book of Acts up to this point, sort of making a parallel or a connection between Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, and now in Acts between this apostle named Paul. We've been seeing now for several chapters Paul's sort of gradual sense that he is to go to Jerusalem. And it now comes into this full effect here. And things are made opaque here in this chapter. That Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And so just as Luke, the same author, had told us in his gospel that Jesus had set his face like flint toward the city of Jerusalem following the transfiguration event, knowing full well that this turning to Jerusalem would entail his arrest, his trial, his condemnation, and ultimately his death, so too Paul has his sights set on the same city, knowing likewise that his return there was going to be quite dangerous. It was going to be costly. And again, he'd been warned already through prophecy from the Spirit that this is going to not turn out well for you. He knew he was going to at least be arrested. And so even though he had been warned and urged not to go, just as the Lord had been warned by his disciples not to go in the same way, Paul unwaveringly stuck to his guns and he marched, he followed the Lord's marching orders into the city, into the lion's den, we might say. And again, as Mark said a few weeks ago, sometimes God calls us to hard things and we must be faithful to go. And so here in Acts 21, the parallel stories of Jesus and Paul begin to reach a boiling point, and Luke makes it clear with a few fairly obvious allusions in the text. We can see, for example, a Jewish mob full of anger and rage. We can also see lies and false accusations levied against an innocent man. We can see their anger about association with unclean people. And then to top it all off, as if it's a crescendo at the end of our passage, we see the same words that were used to cast Jesus off. Away with him. Away with him. Throughout it all, Luke is wanting us to see how Paul's life had been entirely shaped and motivated by a desire to follow in the footsteps of Christ. No wonder Paul often spoke in his, his, in his epistles about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, that he may too receive and share in the power of Christ's resurrection. This was the pattern of Paul's life. And so we too must learn to share in these sufferings. We suffer with Christ so that we may share in his power. But it's here that I want to make one final point as we close out our time together in God's word. And it's this, though Paul's story so far looks like he's heading into the same kind of Jerusalem situation as his Lord, and the same sort of meat grinder that Jesus was walking into, it's also here that the story begins to beautifully change in some really amazing ways. All that was so dark and bleak about the story up to this point, about all these warnings and 
his foretellings of to not go to the city, all of this darkness now begins to burst with little glimmers of light here and there. And we see this again, particularly through the arrival of, interestingly, the Roman soldiers. Whereas Jesus was captured by the Jews and brought before the Roman authorities, here in Acts 21, they catch Paul. But this time, before they can kill him and take matters into their own hands, it's the Roman authorities who step in and begin to protect him. Whereas Jesus was tried and convicted and executed even by the Roman soldiers, Despite having done nothing to warrant these actions, Paul now is taken by them. And he's whisked off, as it were, into safety. They take him into their barracks. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, the Roman soldiers even protect him and guard him and give him a hearing so that he may make his case not only before those in Jerusalem, but then eventually before those in Rome, where he gets to proclaim the gospel at the very heart of the empire. Though everyone feared the worst and even warned him not to go to Jerusalem, just as Jesus' disciples had done with him, here we see the sovereignty of God in preserving Paul amidst all of the chaos and protecting him and giving him a footing to continue making his proclamation clear about the freedom that comes in Christ. And because Paul had faced down death in the Jerusalem temple, coming within inches of his life, What we'll see in the weeks ahead is that this man springs forth as a man reborn. He's gone through this crucible, and now it's almost as if he realizes, I was so close to dying, I might as well just give it all I got. And so as we consider God's constant faithfulness through the life of the apostle, then we might think about God's faithfulness to us. How has God been faithful to me? How has God seen me through the many difficulties of life? And at the end of that, how might I then use what God has done in my life to proclaim his name, to testify of his glory, to show people through my words and my deeds all that God has done? This is a great lesson I believe we can learn from the life of Paul, and it's a lesson we would do well to put into practice so that we, like Paul, can use whatever platform we're given and whatever circumstances we're given to proclaim the name of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.